last week, I know that Laurie shared how much she loved Lynn's statement that this first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy is filled with practical instructions that teach us how we are to conduct ourselves as believers so that what we believe will be reflected in our behavior. And I just love that statement as well. And I think it's a great theme for us to keep in mind throughout this whole book of First Timothy. So now, in chapter 2, Paul gives Timothy some very specific practical instructions in how he is to fulfill that charge and how he's to lead his congregation. And Paul has some really challenging encouragements for us in this chapter that are going to apply to both our personal life and faith as well as our corporate times of worship. He begins his practical instructions with the words, first of all. And how appropriate it is that this first thing that Paul talks to Timothy about is prayer. Prayer is always the first place for us to start in any area of ministry. Prayer is the first place for us to start in any area of our lives, period. Pastor Michael um, shared recently in one of our staff meetings that his spiritual goal for this year is to spend more time in prayer. And as I was going through these verses, I just realized how much my own need is to spend more time in prayer. Paul covers a broad area of prayer here, and he's distinguishing the different types of prayer that we're to pray. He mentions prayers that include entreaties, petitions, and thanksgivings. Some of the versions list supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks. I know that you'll be going over some of these in your discussion groups this morning, but just briefly, supplications, entreaties, and petitions are the, I can't talk this morning, specific requests that we make to God. Intercessions are the prayers that we pray for others. And thanksgiving is, of course, our acknowledgement and gratitude for all that God has done. Thanksgiving is coupled with prayer numerous times throughout God's word and throughout Paul's letters as well. Psalm 104 says that we are to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Philippians 4.6 says that in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And in Colossians 4.2, we're told to devote yourselves in prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So thanking God for what he's already done for us is to be a huge part of our prayer life. Paul urges Timothy to instruct the congregation in all of these types of prayers for all men, beginning with those in high places, including kings, and those in positions of authority. And the reason that Paul gives is found in verse 3. And it's a simple one. He tells Timothy that this is good and acceptable behavior in the sight of God. This is what pleases him. 
And in verse 4, Paul tells Timothy why this pleases God. Because God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is the very heart of God. And this should be the heart of the church. And this should be our heart. And these verses, um, they were really convicting to me. I have to confess that I fall way short of this a lot of the time. And as I thought about how much time I, I spend complaining about those in high places of authority rather than praying for them, I really felt ashamed. My daughter and I were having a, a conversation the other day about a certain female talk show host, and I confess I was complaining about her. And uh, she said to me, Mom, you know, I don't see her that way. I see her as someone who is really lost and someone who really needs the Lord. Of course, I felt really uh, convicted and, you know, <laughs> I, it just really kind of broke my heart that, you know, here she was having this right attitude. And I realized how wrong, how much my attitude was not God's heart. I need to spend more time in prayer than I do in feeling irritated and complaining about those in the media and those in the entertainment industry that I see, you know, influencing our young people especially and, and uh, just pulling them away from godly principles. I also need to spend more time praying for those who are responsible for passing legislation that is so contrary to God's word. I need to remember that they are lost. I need to remember that they need Christ. And the bottom line is, I need more of God's heart. How can I reflect my faith in my behavior if I don't share God's heart? I started thinking about um, the time period of this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy and about the Roman government that was ruling over them and how they too must have been really battling feelings of frustration and I'm sure feelings of anger as well. Paul urges them to pray with a special emphasis on those in high places of authority and it seems they needed to be urged just as we often do today. And we need to be reminded, just as Paul reminds Timothy, that there is one God, the only God, who is the creator of all men, and one mediator between man and God, who is Jesus Christ. And that God has made only one way for man to be reconciled with himself, and it is through that one mediator. And we need to remember what it cost Christ to open up that way. We're called by God to pray for the salvation of all. I found it very interesting that in all that Paul says to Timothy about God's heart for the lost and his desire for all to come to a knowledge of the truth, he centers all of that conversation around the call to prayer. He could have focused on the need for more evangelism. 
He could have focused on the need for more missionaries to go out. He could have focused on the need for more church planting, and all of those things are really important. But he focuses on prayer as being the first thing, the thing of highest priority. And I think what a reminder this is to us of where the real battle is won. Paul not only gives Timothy the reason to, pl- to pray, but he gives Timothy instructions on how to pray. And the first how instruction that Paul gives Timothy is to pray everywhere. The text actually says, I want the men in every place to pray. And some commentators um, specify that the Greek word used here for men is specifically stating that men, apart from women, are to lead the prayers in public worship, and that the everywhere means in every place of worship. There are other commentators like Matthew Henry who believe that this is implying that both men and women are to pray everywhere they are. But whichever is correct, I know that prayer is to be a vital part of our daily lives. Ephesians 6.18 tells us that we're to pray at all times. And that means in all situations, everywhere we are, it should be our natural response as we walk through our day. You know, we're given this amazing privilege this 24-7 access to God's throne. God, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke and it was so, the one who flung the stars into space and knows each one of them by name. And for reasons that I will never, ever be able to comprehend, who gives me his ear when I come to him in prayer. And then how little time in our day do we spend making use of that powerful privilege? And yet, prayer is so powerful. Nothing is more effective in any situation, whether it's large or small. Uh, Chris and I had a construction meeting in Prescott the weekend before last. And uh, we were told that there might be a slight delay in the next steps of our construction because the roof tile had been back-ordered. And they said that it could take maybe one to two extra weeks for it to be delivered. So we left that meeting, of course, feeling really disappointed. But later that night when we got back to the hotel, I just started praying. And, you know, I just started asking the Lord to please intervene You know, I know that this is not a big deal to you. You are able to supply our roof tile. And um, the next day, we went back to look at the house again, and we saw that there were workers there. And one of the foremen came over to us and asked, is this your house? And we said, yes. And he started a conversation with us, telling us how how well everything was coming along. And we told him, you know, we, we already heard about the, the delay in the roof tile. And he interrupted us and said, no, no. No, we were blessed. There was another project that had the roof tile delivered to them, and they're not ready for it. So we called them up, and we did a trade, and they're delivering that roof tile here. I was so blown away. I I was just so amazed by the fact that God heard my heart cry and that he cared about my roof tile. (laughs) 
that he cared enough to intervene and to answer my prayer so quickly. God cares about us. He invites us into his throne room. He says, come to me. We are invited and we're called to be people of prayer. Prayer is to be our lifestyle. Second, Paul tells Timothy that we are to lift up holy hands. And um, he isn't saying that we need to raise our hands when we pray. He's talking about approaching prayer with an attitude of worship. The Lord has given us this incredible gift of an open ear to our heart cries, and he wants an intimate relationship with us, but not one that is absent of reverence and respect. We serve a holy God who's worthy to be praised. And Paul reminds us that we're not to approach prayer with a mindset that isn't mindful of who it is we're talking to. The first half of verse 4, I already mentioned in Psalm 100, tells us to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. But the second half tells us that we are to enter into his courts with praise. The last how-to instruction that Paul gives Timothy is to pray without wrath and dissension. Wrath is strong, vengeful anger, and dissension is conflict, friction, strife, or one definition that I really like says, with war in your heart. Psalm 66, 18 tells me, if I regard inequity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And as, as I was thinking about that, I thought about the times when my prayers weren't necessarily being prayed with God's heart. Times when I've caught myself praying with an attitude of irritation or frustration or anger. Times of maybe praying with selfish motives, with war in my heart. Have you ever had those times? Have you ever had times when maybe out of deep hurt and anger, you actually found yourself praying that that person would get what you feel that they deserved? Maybe forgetting that, thankfully, God has not given us what we deserve? Without wrath and dissension reminds me that my motivation for prayer needs to be pure. The Lord knows when we're irritated and exasperated and frustrated and angry, but we can acknowledge our honest feelings to God, and we should, and still have that motivation and prayer for God to change our heart, for God to align our heart with his heart, and for him to work his will in the situation. Now, as Paul continues his instructions in the second half of this chapter, he shifts his focus to the women in the church and how they are to conduct themselves. And I have to say that um, these verses have caused a lot of controversy and a lot of misunderstanding. Paul's first focus is on a woman's appearance. So he says in verse 9, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. You know, we have, um, there are individuals 
there are whole churches, there's even whole congregations or whole denominations that have taken this verse and formed legalistic doctrines from it. Doctrines that forbid women to wear makeup or jewelry and even have rules on how they should style their hair and what kind of clothes they should wear or anything actually that they would do to look nice. Well, this is not what Paul is talking about. And I don't believe that this is at all the Lord's heart either. And I want to look at a couple other passages in God's word that might give us a clearer insight. So let's look at Genesis 24, 53. Abraham had sent his servant out to find a wife for his son Isaac. And upon finding Rebekah, it says, then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He gave her these beautiful gifts that any young woman, or any woman for that matter, would want to wear. In Ezekiel 16, 10 through 13, God paints a beautiful word picture of his love for Israel as his bride. And he says, I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Although I know that this is a word picture that God is painting of his love for Israel, the language he uses makes it evident that these were gifts of love. They're, they're not things that were inappropriate or forbidden for a woman to wear. We could do a whole nother message on modesty and the importance of not wearing clothes that would cause our brother to stumble, and that should go without saying. But I think that Paul is talking about more of our attitude and where our focus is than he is setting rules on what we should or shouldn't wear. And I think that verse 10 makes that even clearer with the word rather that Paul uses. He's saying rather than all of that stuff I just mentioned, let your adornment be an inner beauty reflected in your behavior. Your true beauty shouldn't come from what you wear, but from who you are inside. It should come from your character. And rather than people noticing your pretty clothes or jewelry, what people should see and notice are your good works, which are the outflow of a heart after God and the behavior that is appropriate for a woman who professes to worship God. So that's my paraphrase, but I, I think it's clear that Paul's making the point that true beauty comes from the inside, not by what we do to the outside. And you know, this, uh, this really isn't as easy for us as it sounds. Living in the world that we live in today that puts so much emphasis on how we look but the bottom line is, ladies, that this outward appearance, no matter what we do to it, no matter how great the beauty products are that we use or you know, how skilled we are in applying our makeup or fixing our hair, 
it is eventually going to bag and sag and wear out. I don't care what you do to it. You might be able to slow that train down, but you are not going to stop it. So we need to remember that this outward appearance, it's a temporary tent. Some great, great scripture references for us to look up and some that will probably come up in your discussion time today are Proverbs 31.30, 2 Corinthians 4.18, and Colossians 3.1. These are great reminders that we need to spend more time reflecting on the inside rather than our reflection in the mirror. In the last section of this chapter, Paul shifts his focus now from a woman's appearance to her behavior in church. And I'm going to read verses 11 through 15 from the New Living Translation simply because I think it sounds just itty-bitty, teeny-weeny bit less offensive. It says, women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Now, I know <laughs> that this verse sounds so condescending and so degrading, especially in the time period that we're living in. And it's not surprising at all that this has been the subject of controversy and division within the church for decades. But I think that this is such an important piece of instruction for us to know and to understand. Remember, Paul is instructing Timothy in the, the guidelines for public worship and conduct within the church. And just as when we talk about the different roles that God gave men and women in the marriage relationship, there's an order that God has ordained in the church, which is also a picture of Christ and his bride. And whether we like it or not, this is God's ordained authority. This is his instruction. And if we want to argue about it, we need to remember we're not arguing with Paul. We're arguing with God. By God's divine plan and his authority, man has been given the place of leadership from the beginning of creation, ordained by God. And I don't believe that we can look at this portion of scripture and decide that it's not meant for us today. I know that we live in a society that has, for the most part, totally disregarded God's intention when he created man and woman. And that disregard can be seen in more ways than we can even count. And that number is being added to every day on a long list of ways we see that disregard. But there's no reason for us to think that his order within the church or marriage 
has changed because society has changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so is his word. But that does not mean that women have no important roles in the church. On the contrary, women have always had important roles with examples in both the New and Old Testament. We know that Anna, in the second chapter of Luke, was a prophetess. Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, was also called a prophetess in Exodus 15.20. Deborah, in Judges 4.4, was a judge as well as a prophetess. In Acts 24, we read that Philip, the evangelist, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And in Romans 16, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. In that same chapter, he speaks of Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife team who had a church in their home, as being his fellow workers in the ministry. Priscilla is also mentioned in Acts 18.26 as the one who, with her husband, invited Apollos into their home in order to explain to him the way of God more perfectly. In Titus 2, we see that women are called to be teachers of good things with a particular focus that they instruct younger women in areas of marriage, child-rearing, homemaking, and godliness. So women have always had many prominent roles within the church. Most commentators agree that the subject of a woman being silent or quiet in the church is because Paul was dealing with a very specific situation that was happening. The Bible exposition commentary calls the wording in verse 10 an unfortunate translation because it gives the impression that believing women are never to open their mouths in the assembly. This is the same word that is translated peaceable in 1 Timothy 2.2. It goes on to say that some of the women abused their newfound freedom in Christ, and they created disturbances in the services by interrupting. And this is the problem that Paul addresses in this admonition. Paul appeared to be dealing with some women who thought nothing of interrupting the teacher in the middle of his message to ask a question or make a comment. And he wanted to stop this behavior that was causing so much disruption in the services. And we know that order in the church service was something very important to Paul. He also addresses this topic in 1 Corinthians 14.40, saying that all things in the church service are to be done decently and in order. We, we just read about a number of women in both the Old and New Testament who were given the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is speaking out a message given by God. So it's clear God wouldn't give a woman the gift of prophecy and then forbid her to speak in the church. Paul was not making a blanket statement that women were never to open their mouths in the assembly. Paul uses creation as his main reasoning for the woman to be in that submissive role. And he talks about the order of creation and he talks about the order of the fall. Sin did begin with a woman's disobedience. 
But both Adam and Eve sinned, and both had curses pronounced on them that would be passed down to every single descendant after them. And as we move into the very confusing words of verse 15, although the language may sound extremely offensive to us, most scholars agree that Paul's words were actually meant to be words of comfort. The heart of what Paul was saying was that although the consequences of sin have been hard, yet it's through the pain of childbirth, that very curse bestowed on Eve, that a Savior would come into the world to bring salvation once and for all and deliver man from all the curses of sin. And isn't this just so like the Lord? This compassionate heart of God who makes beauty from ashes and turns mourning into dancing and works all things together for good? You know, this chapter began with a glimpse into the compassion of God's heart for mankind. And it ends with a view of that same heart. Paul sums up this portion of his letter with a reminder that this promise of salvation isn't for those outside of Christ. Paul wasn't telling women that childbirth would save them, but that salvation would come through the Savior who would be born from a woman's womb. Jesus has made a way for all, but only those that take that way will be saved. Those who, Paul says, continue in the faith and in those things that reflect on the outside the evidence of a genuine faith within. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we just thank you so much that you have such compassion for your creation. Lord, that you are so faithfully pursuing us, even when we are not faithful to you. Lord, I just pray that as we glean the instructions that Paul has given Timothy in this chapter, that we would take to heart those things, Lord, and that you would give us a heart that's after your heart. Give us a heart for prayer. Give us a heart that is more concerned about being that godly woman you've called us to be than the things we do on the outside. Lord, I pray that you would just um, minister to each woman here this morning, that as your word goes out, as they enter into their discussion groups and talk about the, the things that were mentioned in this lesson, that you would plant your word deeply in each heart. Lord, that we would grab hold of that charge you've given us individually. And Father, that we would be those women who would reflect on the outside a genuine faith within. In Jesus' name, amen.